when Pastor Tyler announced this plan that when he was gone, or even if he's here, um, he, he's, he's going to let the staff uh, preach, um, even in the, am I, yeah, what's up here? Am I good? Uh, even if it's in his series, so like if, if we're just finished 1 Samuel 3 last week, I wouldn't come up and preach James 2, like I'm going to come up and I'm going to just keep, we're going to keep going in, uh, in his series, and I love that approach, but it's actually a scary approach too, because as a staff guy, you don't know what you're going to get. And so at, at first, I'm thinking the way the calendar laid out was I was going to get 1 Samuel 3. And man, I love preaching about the Word of God. Like that's a shouting, hollering, stomping, snorting, like the Word of God, man, that's awesome. Um, but then when I saw that I was going to have chapter 4, I, I was with Mike actually when he told me, hey, bro, you might not be preaching chapter 3, you might be in chapter 4. And so I clicked, I, I went into my uh, Logos app on my phone. It's a Bible software app, cheap plug there um, for any of you Bible lovers. And I, I started reading 1 Samuel 4, and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to say about this. <laughs> like, no clue at all. Um, but man, I, I believe, I've been, I've been wrestling with this text for, for a few weeks now. And I really believe the Lord has something for us tonight. Um, the Lord always has something for us in his word. So I, I believe that if we'll, we'll sit up and, and, and have our Bibles open and ready, I, I believe that God can speak to us tonight. Um, and, and I believe that real heart, heart change can happen as a result of the Holy Spirit meeting up with God's word in your heart. So let's pray and then we'll get into the sermon. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to preach tonight. Lord, I pray that you would use your word in an amazing way. God, I pray that you would cause your spirit to uh, stir people's hearts and lives tonight, Lord. Um, God, and I pray that we would leave changed people because of how you meet with us tonight, and that we would leave as people that uh, desire to be in an abiding relationship with you, and people that desire to be doers, not just hearers of your word. So Lord, I ask that you would be with us here tonight. Help me to communicate your word in an effective way in a way that's clear, in a way that makes sense to our people, Lord. God, I pray that you just bless your word tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want you to picture this scenario. A husband wakes up one morning, he rolls over to find a folded uh, piece of paper. It's a note from his wife explaining uh, that she couldn't do it anymore. The note reads like this, honey... We have been through a lot, but it's time for me to go. You neglect me. You make me feel as though I am trash. You lie to me. You verbally abuse me. And you cheat on me. I've tried to get you to come to church. I've tried to get you to go to counseling. But nothing ever gets you to change, so I'm leaving. I still love you, and I want this to work. But I will not come back until you change. The husband jumps out of bed. He runs through the house in disbelief. He's opening doors. He's looking in the garage. He's checking closets, and he can't find her anywhere. He's scurrying all about the house, and and his heart is racing, and he's panting, and and he's just kind of having a breakdown. He, He picks up his phone, and he tries to call her, and she won't answer, and he tries to call again and still won't answer, and a third time, and she still won't answer. And then it finally, after the 10 minutes or so of chaos, it finally dawns on him that she's gone. He sits in the middle of the living room floor and sighs. 
And he's devastated. Just absolutely devastated. What this husband failed to realize in our made-up story here was that just because his wife had finally left physically, he had destroyed their marriage years ago. He had lost her heart years ago, but this was this drastic step that he needed to wake him up. That, in a sense, is what happens to Israel here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. God is dealing with the people that, was, that has left him, and he had to do something drastic to get their attention. And we'll see that God literally takes his presence out of Israel in order to get their attention. I know that in my own life, God has allowed me to experience life without his presence and hand of blessing on my life. I remember at Heartland Baptist Bible College, I had a, uh, a paper to turn in, a report to turn in. And I was sitting at a table in the, in the cafeteria with Taryn and a bunch of her friends. And I'm supposed to be typing away at this paper. And the whole time, all I can think to myself, and I, I just kept literally saying out loud, Taryn probably remembers, I'm dry. I'm dry. I've got nothing. I got nothing. I'm just, I'm dry. And it kind of became a, a, little, a little inside joke between myself and Taryn and her friends there. But there have been times since that day when I've just felt plain dry. What I mean by that is there have been times when I have literally zero spiritual energy. And it just seems like I'm going through the motions and that in all actuality, God is a million miles away from me. Have you ever felt dry? Have you ever felt like God just wasn't there? Have you ever felt like God's presence had departed from you? That can leave you confused, can it? Where'd you go, God? God, I, I thought you loved me. God, you said you would never leave me or forsake me. Yet, God, I really feel like that's what you've done. What causes God to withdraw his presence and hand of blessing away from our lives? What, what causes that to happen? That's the question I want to answer tonight. And the question I believe the text of 1 Samuel chapter number 4 wants to answer. 1 Samuel 4 is, is all about God fulfilling his word concerning his judgment on Eli and his family and even the children of Israel. It was prophesied through a man in 1 Samuel chapter 2, a man of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and then once again uh, by God to Samuel, as we saw last week, in 1 Samuel chapter number 3. God is fed up with Eli. God is fed up with his sons. God is fed up with the nation of Israel as a whole. And here in 1 Samuel 4, he rids Israel of their priesthood and causes great devastation to happen. But man, this shouldn't be so. 1 Samuel chapter 3 was such a momentous passage, wasn't it? I mean, it feels like we're about to witness the rise of this great prophet named Samuel. But before Samuel can ascend as a prophet, God has to devastate all of Israel. The first movement we're going to see is that God lovingly judges his people for their disobedience. Look at verse 1. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched between Ebenezer and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Do you notice in that first verse, it says that uh, the word of, the, of Samuel came to all Israel. 
What's the word of Samuel? Well, we saw it last week in chapter 3 where God came to Samuel and said, I'm going to destroy Eli and I'm going to destroy his sons. The, that word, it came to all Israel. So when we see Israel here get slain 4,000 men's worth, Israel's not some innocent bystander that's just suffering God's wrath. No, the word of Samuel came to Israel. They knew of God's coming judgment against them and against Eli and against his son. And, and actually, at, at, um, in chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel spoke to the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, and put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So we know for a fact that it wasn't just Eli. And it wasn't just his sons that were rebelling against God. It was the entire nation of Israel that have gathered to themselves gods that were not God. That's what's going on here. They're no innocent bystander. Israel went into battle with the Philistines. And, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament uh, narratives and, and the book of Judges and Samuel and Kings and, and, and even the prophets, you'll know that God uses other nations to uh, bring judgment upon his own people. Whenever they would depart from God and worship and serve other little G gods, God would allow them to be punished by another nation in an attempt to draw them back. Israel so uh, went into battle right here in 1 Samuel 4, the very first part, and they just get absolutely smoked. Absolutely smoked. The text says that the Philistines killed about 4,000 men. Now, this confused the Israelites. If you can think about their history and how they fared out in warfare so far, this wasn't supposed to happen. They had the God of gods as their God. They aren't supposed to lose the pagan nations, people. So can I can imagine. They get whooped and they gather back together. Guys, what's going on here? Hey, what's up, man? What, why are we getting beat by these pagan nations? Why did the Philistines just stomp all over us? They kind of sat around and scratched their heads and then it finally dawns on them. Ah, wait a minute. I know what it is. The Ark of the Covenant isn't here. That's it. That's what, that's what is going on. We need the Ark of the Covenant. That's why we lost. Are you kidding me? Oh, we're so silly. Only 4,000 of our people are dead. But, but okay. Brain slip, right? Let's just, let's just go get the ark. Look, that's what they say. Look at the end of verse 3. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Now the ark of the covenant was a, a, a box type thing that uh, was gold, cover, gold covered. It was portable and uh, it was about three, three and three quarter feet long, about two and a quarter feet uh, high and wide. And it represented Yahweh's rulership in their life. And it sat behind the, uh, what was called the most holy place. And so it was a special thing to the nation of Israel. And the ark was a sign of God's presence in battle. But get this. Only when the ark was carried in faith and by divine leadership. Here they're just using the ark as a mechanism to twist God's arm into giving them the victory. When the ark gets here, we're, we're going to mop up the battlefield. Man, once that ark gets here, there ain't nothing they can do to us. The ark was their cheat code. Am I right? If they had the ark, they had God's power in battle. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring uh, from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. 
which dwelt between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh-oh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of the great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O you Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the, ark of the God, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Well, how'd that work out for you? They brought the ark into the camp. They sent for it in Shiloh. They brought it back to the camp where they essentially had a pep rally, did they not? I mean, when I was a, a high school student, um, freshman to about junior year, our high school football team was just absolutely horrendous. Just awful. This is the funny thing about bad high school football teams. Every Friday, about 2.30, they have what's called a pep rally. At this pep rally, in my school anyways, we kind of sat in a stadium-like uh, gym. So we had our, our court here and then seats filled. It was like an arena. So what would happen is the dressing rooms would come out from the sides. And, and what would happen is, you know, the long line of football players would come walking out. You know what I mean? And they would walk. They would walk the entire court all the way around. And then they would, in order, line up in three rows, four rows of chairs, how many football players there were. Cheerleaders would cheerlead, the band would play the fight song, um, and then there was usually always some sort of inspirational speech, and then the football players would huddle at the center court while the fans went nuts, and they would like jump around each other like this, and they would high five, and they would chest bump, and they'd do all these chants, and then game time comes, and we're in the locker room, and no, 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 it gets better, we're in the locker room. Our coach had this friend that was a really, really good motivational speaker, and he would always bring this guy in every single week, no matter if it was home or away. And this guy would come in in his Stetson cowboy hat and his big old boots. He's a big old dude, too. He's, he's big and bad, played college football, like linebacker and stuff. He would come in and he would just chew our team out. Do you want to wake up in the morning and see in the papers that you got beat? Is that what you want tomorrow? No. And so everyone would go crazy in the locker room. And then we'd walk to the field. You know, the, the high school, you know, arms locked, walk into the field. And then uh, we'd get in the tunnel. And so these little inflatable tunnels, you know, big football players in an inflatable tunnel. And they're like pushing the tunnel up. And they're pushing the tunnel up. And you always get that one guy that's screaming in everybody's face. And they're all pushing each other up. And then the fog starts to go out. And they charge through the fog. Four quarters later, it's 50 to zero. <laughs> Every single night. But that's what's happening here. The Israelites just got smoked. 4,000 to nothing. And so they get the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going crazy. Like, whoa, 
We got the ark. Yeah, it's here. It's here. We're going to do this. We're going to get them. We're going to, yeah, we're going to take it right to them. I'm not kidding. That's what's going on. They're jacked up about this thing. The Philistines, it kind of freaks them out a little bit. What in the world's going on over there? My word. Is that the ark of, of the Lord? Oh man, I've heard about this God. This is the guy that, the God that plagued Pharaoh. This is the God that plagued the Egyptians. Hey, it's almost like uh, the pagan Philistines knew more about God than the Israelites did. Am I right? Hey, this is, this is the God that, that brought them out of Egypt. And then one bold guy comes through and says, hold up. This is the Hebrews. I don't care who their God is. They serve us. I'm not going to serve them. Nah, y'all better man up. Y'all better quit acting like a bunch of sissies and man up. We're going out to fight these dudes. What happened? They, they quit themselves like men. They manned up and they went out and killed 30,000 Israelites. 30,000 Israelites. Oh, we got the Ark of the Covenant. We got the Ark of the Lord. We're going to mess these guys up. Hold, oh, wait up. You can't twist God into doing what you want him to do. You can't tempt God. You can't bend God's arm into doing what you want him to do. And that's exactly what they were doing. So what in the world's going on here? Israel's army's decimated. Hophni and Phinehas are dead as God said they would be and the Ark of the Covenant is gone. Why did God let the Philistines kill over 30,000 soldiers? Why did God kill Hophni and Phinehas? Why did God allow the Ark of the Covenant to be stolen? Here's why. Because God lovingly judges his people for their disobedience. God wasn't doing this because he hated Israel. He was doing this because they departed from him and they wanted them back desperately. And he was willing to go to whatever means to get his children back. What does it look like today? Well, the same as it did with Israel. God allows us today to suffer defeat. He reveals to us intangible and intangible ways that his presence is no longer with us. It could be a departure of spiritual fruit. Whereas one point you once had your anger conquered, you, you start to notice that your anger is coming back into your life. And you once had uh, your lust conquered and you were living in purity and you were living in, in holiness. And now you realize that you're starting to lose the battle and, and lust is coming back into your life and you have no idea why. You thought you had victory over this. It could be a coldness that you feel towards God. You wake up and he's not at all the first thing you think about. Not even the second, third, or fourth thing. You have no desire to get into his book. You have no desire to spend time with him in prayer. And you just have a, a coldness that says, I, don't, I just really don't care about God right now. I'd rather do my own thing. It could be a health crisis. God could let some sort of sickness or disease come into your life to, to get your attention and show you that you're living in a way that's disobedient to him. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a marriage that is constantly has tension in it. It could be a layoff from work. It could be a loss of a ministry position right here in the church. It could be young people, your parents tightening up and putting more restrictions in your life. Hey, I'm not saying that every cold or cancer is God's judging you. 
But sometimes uh, God allows those things uh, to happen and, and they're going to make us better and they're gonna, God's going to use those kind of things in our life. I'm not necessarily saying that everything bad that comes in your way is God saying that you're living in disobedience. We all know that to be truth, right? But it is clear from the book of Hebrews in chapter number 12 that he says this, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Hey, it's clearly stated in the book of Hebrews that if you're a child of God and you're living in disobedience, he's going to chasten you. He's not going to let you get away with it. He's not going to let you just go your own way without at some point intersecting in your life and saying, hey, buddy, you're wrong. You're living in sin. Come back to me. I want you back. If you're a child of God, you, you can't live like the devil and get away with it. He won't let you. I want to be clear about something here. When you feel like God isn't there anymore and you really feel like God's presence has departed from your life, it isn't because God hates you. It isn't because you're not saved anymore. It isn't because God doesn't care about your life anymore. It's because, it's because God loves you and he wants you back. God lovingly, not hatefully, lovingly judges his children who live in disobedience. One thing that I have found is that when God's chastening, of, uh, chastening hand is on someone's life, is they're oftentimes focused on the wrong things. They're focused on the loss of God's blessing or whatever it is that God took away, but they aren't focused on the fact that there is a gaping hole in their relationship with God. They're focused on the consequences, but not what got them there in the first place. Look at verse 12. It says in verse 12, And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh, uh, the same day, with his clothes written, with earth on his head. And, and when he came, lo, Eli sat upon the seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army and fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he had made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. One truth that I noticed here in this, this section is unrepentant people grieve over the wrong things. A man of the tribe of Benjamin escaped from the battle with his life. And he was so focused on delivering the news of what went on to the battle that he just, he, he ran all the way from the battle, which if, if I remember my, my reading and my commentaries right, it's about a 20, 25 mile run. Who wants to run a marathon to go give somebody some bad news? I'll be running a marathon the other way, right? But this Benjamite, he's so focused on delivering the news that he blows right past Eli. Eli was sitting at the front of the city. He was concerned, as the text said, he was concerned about the ark. He was worried about the ark. He knew the ark was going into battle. And he cared deeply for the ark. So he's sitting there and this Benjamite runs right past them. And he goes into the city and he starts screaming and he starts heralding 
Israel's been slaughtered. We've all been slaughtered. They're all dead. 30,000 plus. Hophni and Phineas are dead. The ark is gone. The ark is gone. Like, can you, like, like this is what's going on here. The city just opens up in, 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 in crying out. The city's devastated. If you thought the pep rally was loud, the, the sound of this city uh, mourning and wailing over what is going on uh, in Israel and their nation, that's what's going on in the city. They were devastated. Absolutely devastated. After the Benjamite told all of Israel, he went back to Eli. And I can imagine that by the time he's run to Israel and he's, he's run in and he's, he's told all the city the news, this adrenaline's kind of wearing off. And the fact that he had just ran 26 miles is wearing off. So he goes back out to the front of the city. And he comes and he stands before Eli. Eli, I got some bad news. Israel's been slaughtered. They killed 30,000 of our men. Eli doesn't say a word. Not only that, your two sons are dead. Eli doesn't say a word. And not only that, Eli, the Philistines stole the ark of God. And that right there is what literally sent him backwards to his death. He fell backwards, and because he was a heavier man, he landed on his neck. His neck broke. He is 98-year-old. A 98-year-old man can't take falling on the back of his neck without it breaking and him dying. The grief of the news, not of Israel, not of his sons, get this, not even of the fact that God had long ago departed from them and his judgment was on them for their unrepentance towards him. It was on the ark. It was on what was supposed to be the physical representation of God. That, that's what sent Eli over the edge. No doubt this, this was a devastating blow to all of Israel. But I just can't help but think that they were devastated for the wrong reasons. Their hope had been placed in wicked priests. Their hope had been placed in physical representations of God's power, the ark. Their grief wasn't coming from a place of sorrow over God's presence literally departing from them. The grief was from things being taken from them that they had made their gods. Unrepentant people grieve over the wrong things. We're no different, are we? God tries to get our attention through sickness and disease and we complain about the sickness and the medical bills that it causes. God tries to get our attention through the loss of a relationship or a job and we grieve over the loss of the relationship and we grieve over the job. God allows us to lose a ministry position and we grieve that we won't be in that spot anymore. When it just seems like God isn't answering your prayers for yourself or for your marriage and your kids and, 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 and for your life, then it's not you, it's God to be the blame. He is the big meanie and you grieve over his unfairness to you. In all reality, church, we shouldn't grieve over the consequences of our sin and unrepentance, but over the fact that whereas we were once close to God, we no longer are. That's where the real grief should be placed. Look, what, what happened here isn't because God had split away from Israel. We know that's not the case. It's because Israel had left him and we have left him for gods of our own. 
Lastly, we come to the main idea to believe, uh, I believe to be in this passage. God's glory departs from unrepentant hearts. God's glory departs from unrepentant hearts. Look at verse 19. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, and her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. What a sad scene. Like chapter 4 is a, is, a, is a sad and heavy heavy chapter. Here's this woman, Phineas' wife, pregnant with his son. And we know the background and the history of Phineas and what kind of man he was, but yet he still had a wife and she's pregnant with this kid. When she receives the news that her husband, her brother-in-law, and her father-in-law were all dead and the ark had been taken. The devastating news literally brought so much pain that she went into labor with her son. The midwives of, of sorts tried to console her. And tried to say, hey, look, you, you bore a son, which was from, we see in, from what we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 1, was a blessing. To give birth to a son was a big deal. It was awesome. It means God had his blessing on you. I'm starting to think that Phineas' wife was a lot more godly than Phineas ever was. Yet she didn't care that she had a son. There was no cheer. How could there be? There was no happiness. Just pain and devastation. Just pain and devastation. The only thing that she could do before she died was name her son Ichabod, which means God's glory has departed from Israel. That's the equation for devastation right there. Unrepentant hearts, they get so far from God that God actually has to bring devastation into your life to get you back to him. If you want, to, if you want God to take his presence away from your life, just live a life of unrepentance. Live a life following after your own heart, your own desires, your own gods, if you don't want God's presence in your life. Man, I don't know if you notice in the narrative. Did you notice in the narrative the, the weight given to the ark? The whole narrative is about the ark, isn't it? Israel had quite the attachment uh, to the ark. Um, it's what caused the, uh, it's what the Israel's thought could cause them to win. It's what caused Eli to fall back and die. It's what caused uh, this woman to give birth to a son and pronounce that God's glory had been taken from Israel. They cared so deeply for the thing that represented God, but yet had no desire for God himself. They cared so deeply for this physical representation of God's rulership that they were devastated when it was gone, and yet they had no, no care in the world for God's literal presence being taken away from them. They didn't even recognize that. They were concerned about this ark. Let's be real here for a minute. Can any man really steal God? No. The Philistines could have stolen the ark a million times, but they could never steal God from Israel. No, God chose to step away. God chose to leave them. 
God chose to turn his back on them. Why? Because they turned their backs on him. It had nothing to do with the ark. But here's these Israelites. We have Abraham. Oh, we have Jacob. We have Isaac. We have Moses as our leader. We were delivered out of Egypt. Look at, look at our history, man. We're awesome. We got this ark. It's led us through so many battles. It's given us so many victories. Look at all we've got. And they got stunned. They got devastated. But we're the exact same way. We replace God in our own lives with things that represent God to us. Oh, we don't have to repent because we've been baptized before. Hey, I praise God for the 10 that were baptized this morning. Absolutely, I do. But we go back to a time like that and say, that's my relationship with God. I'm good. Hey, we think just because we're members of Fellowship Baptist Church that we're good and we can live any way we want to. We're part of a great church right here in Liberal Kansas. How much further from the truth could we be, friends? I serve up in J12. I work with the youth. I sing in the choir. Am I right here? We replace God with activities that we do. I'm still going strong in my rooted devotional. I'm still uh, reading my Bible from the first of the year. Oh, church, we have done things and we do things that are real religious. But are we, are you repentant? Where's your heart with God tonight? Hey, I'm thankful you're here. I'm thankful you're here on a Sunday evening that shows your commitment to this church. But I want to know, are you with God where you're supposed to be with God? Are you living in repentance tonight? Or do you have sin that is just piling up in your heart and you're going your own way secretly and no one else knows but you? We all have things that point to our religiosity, don't we? But are we repentant? You see, God's glory doesn't depart from us because he no longer loves us. God's glory departs from unrepentant hearts, doesn't it? God doesn't just take his presence out of our lives for no reason. No, friends. God repents from us when we don't. God turns his back when we turn our backs on him. And it isn't his lack of love for you that causes God's presence in your life to depart from you. No. We got to get this. It's our own sin. Whenever you feel like God's not in your life anymore and God's making it evident and tangible in intangible ways that he's, His presence isn't in your life anymore, you always got to know it's never Him. He's perfect. He's holy. He never walks away from you unless you decide to walk away from Him. It's just like the husband from the very beginning that neglects, verbally abuses his wife, Ends the marriage far before she ever leaves him. Why'd she leave him? It wasn't because she was cruel. It wasn't because she hated him. It was because she loved him and she wanted him to wake up. God only leaves when we leave him. He only pulls his hand of blessing out of our lives when we pull our faith away from him. And he only chastens us when we live in unrepentant sins. So let me ask you again. Do you feel dry tonight? Do you feel like God's not speaking to you anymore? Do you have a coldness in your heart toward God? Do you have bitterness raging up in your heart towards someone else or towards God? 
Where are you at with God tonight? Hey, man, I'm so thankful you're here. And you know that, you know that that's what I believe. You know that's my heart for you. I'm so thankful for that. But I, I got to know, is there someone in here tonight that, that's just truly living in disobedience? That's living in unrepentance? I wonder if there's someone here tonight that is headed towards the same fate of devastation like the nation of Israel suffered. What's it going to have to do? What's God going to have to do in your life to get your attention? Hey, God's a patient God. He was patient with the nation of Israel. He, he gave them time to repent and he'll, he'll give you time to repent. But there's going to come a day when you, you turn back from it so, for so long and you live in disobedience for so long that one day God's going to cause something major in your life to happen to get your attention. Why let it get to that? He's a patient God. He's a long-suffering God. He's a loving God. He doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to chasten you. He wants you to live in obedience with Him. What's it going to take, church? One of the most uh, monumental nights of my life. I'll never forget. I was saved as a sophomore in high school. Um, didn't really live for the Lord in high school, I had moments. Um, there was a time when, when Tim Tebow was like, you know, he was like the big deal. He was the Christian football player. And he was super cool. He was all over the news. So like my senior year, I wanted to be like Tim Tebow. So I kind of acted like a Christian uh, just during sports to, to be like him. Um, but really, I, I didn't have a love for God at all. And I was actually just totally unrepentant and living in disobedience. And I'll never forget the night of January 1st where... It's the 31st, actually. We're bringing in the new year. And I'm actually with my youth pastor. Uh, me and a bunch of other guys are with my youth, pa youth pastor at his house. And I'll never forget, as a, as a guy that was about to enter into his 20s, so I guess he was my former youth pastor. Yeah, it was 20, 2013, going into 2014. As a guy that was about to be in his 20s or in his 20s, I don't remember. Um, man, we stayed up late that night. And we talked about, with my youth pastor, some of the vilest things. I mean, vile. Um, something no Christian, backslidden or not, should never be talking about. I'll never forget, I, I got home that night. I laid in bed, and something just came over me. God absolutely crushed my heart as I was laying there. God doesn't have to use a health crisis or a financial crisis to get your attention. In the calmness and the stillness of you just lying in bed, God can come into your heart and just absolutely crush you. And that's what he did to me. He crushed my heart, man. And it was awesome. And uh, I, in bed that night, I, I laid there and I cried and I wept and I repented and I asked for forgiveness and I got right with the Lord. And then the Lord set me on a trajectory that, I mean, I'm getting to preach to people. This is awesome. Romans 5.1 essentially says that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you as an enemy. You're not meant to be his enemy. You're meant to have peace with him and, and abide in him and have a, a communing relationship with him every single day. While he wants those things, I want to remind you, he lovingly judges his people who live in disobedience. And sadly, most of the time, we grieve at the consequences of our sin and not the fact that our sin has separated us from God. 
And since God's presence departs from those with unrepentant hearts, it's our responsibility and it's our duty to confess our sins, to repent and return to him. That's what this chapter is calling us to do, folks. This chapter is calling you back to God. You don't have to be devastated. You don't have to be wounded by God in order for him uh, to get your attention to come back to love him. No, you, you, can, you can get that right tonight. So as Brother Mike comes or, or Brother Joel comes, the musicians come, I want to ask you to stand with me. Heads bowed, eyes closed.